You are listening to Sonic Entanglements. Welcome to Sonic Entanglements, a podcast about sound history in Southeast Asia. My name is Mele Yamomo, and in this series, I will speak with historians, musicologists, media scholars, and sound archivists. Last episode, I interviewed Professor Elizabeth Betsy Enriquez about her journey from being a radio and television broadcaster to a professor of mass communication at the University of the Philippines. The previous episode is not a requisite to be able to follow our discussion in this episode. But if you haven't heard it yet, please give it a listen to understand some of the contexts of our conversation. This episode is a continuation of our dialogue, and this time, we talk about what she discovered while researching in the archives in the Philippines and the U.S. We also reflect on the relationship of archives with colonial history. Betsy, your book in itself is an extensive secondary source material for all of us researching the radio history in the Philippines. As the foremost historian on this topic, you have undertaken the grueling task of traveling to different cities to find primary archival sources. How did you find your historical sources? Which archives did you go to? And where did you find the resources to do this work? Well, you're right. It requires a lot of time and a lot of financial resources. But I think the first difficulty I had to overcome was the fact that I was not trained to become a historian. And my major in the undergrad was journalism. And then my career revolved around radio and television. So history writing was not something I was trained for. And so the first thing I did was to take courses as cognates in history when I was doing my PhD, because I felt that I needed to learn what historians do to be able to construct history. So I found out I needed to go to the archives, and that was a lot of work. But I said, okay, we got to do this. So I did it. Here in the Philippines, I dug up materials in the Philippine archives. We have a national archives, actually. And then, of course, the UP has archives, too. There was the Laurel Archives, which is uh, hardly visited by scholars, but I found out that there is such an archive, so I went there. The archives of the Ateneo de Manila, where a large American collection is stored. And then I also went to several libraries. Because I maintained my professional and personal connections with many broadcasters, I was lucky enough to have access to a few broadcasters who cut their teeth in radio during the American colonial period. I interviewed Coco Trinidad, Deli Mangpayo, whom we know as Tia Deli. Priscilla, the young people don't remember her, but she was a very famous jazz singer during the American colonial period and even a couple of decades after the war. And also Conde Ubaldo, whom the young people also don't remember anymore, but was one of the largest radio producers as a block timer during the American colonial period and even a couple of decades after the Second World War. They were also among the pioneers. And then I also gained access to a collection of old recordings from which I got some of the sound files in the CD that accompanied my book. I was also lucky that I received a Fulbright scholarship, 
and that supported my research in the U.S. Library of Congress and the U.S. National Archives and Records Administration. I knew that I needed to go there because they kept a lot of materials on the Philippines, and I needed to access those materials because much of those materials in the Philippines had already been destroyed. So uh, while I was in the U.S., I also interviewed a couple of personalities. And then I didn't go to Geneva, but I wrote the International Telecommunications Union, which is headquartered there, for data that I wanted for my research. And luckily, the ITU was very cooperative. How long was your fellowship in the U.S.? Oh, the Fulbright Scholarship was for six months. It wasn't enough, really, but that was all I could afford also to be away. I had a young family at that time. But the six months also allowed me to forge a lot of relationships. I mean, I expanded my network. So every so often, I would still email for additional material. And it also was enough time to give me the familiarity with the type of record groups that the National Archives has, as, as well as the Library of Congress. Also, luckily, they were beginning to digitize a lot of their material. And a lot of it has been put online. Not all of it, but what's online gives you an idea of what to look for and how to look for it. So I still find myself going online looking for things whenever I think about something that I should have looked for, but I didn't find. As historians, we often enter an archive and assume that things are arranged the way we would have wanted them to be. But often they are not. And it takes some effort to understand the organizational system of the collections. Yeah, yeah. What are your adventure stories in the archive? What was it like to research private collections? What was your experience in the U.S. archives? And what are the challenges that you had to face? Yeah, well, you know, let's start with the challenges. You know? The biggest challenge then, and even now, is that broadcast stations do not archive their material. I wanted to start with the broadcast stations themselves, especially the ones that had been around before the war, you know? but they don't archive their material, not even the big ones. And we also need to remember that they operated or began operating before the technology for recording became mature enough and accessible in terms of cost. So we also have to remember that in radio, there is no felt necessity to record anything. Everything on radio until today is delivered live with the exception of soap operas and advertising. Even now, some ads are still delivered live, unlike in print and film, where it is necessary to produce the content on some tangible material like celluloid and paper, respectively. For radio, that wasn't necessary. Scripts were written, but unless someone kept them for posterity, they were discarded. Radio signals, as we know, are ephemeral and gone the second after it airs. So the culture or the habit of keeping records was not a concern until the last several years. And even in the last several years, not all stations kept a record of everything that they had put on the air. Moreover, there was World War II. There was a lot of destruction, including the Philippine National Library and Archives that was already established during the American colonial period. The resources of radio stations were intentionally destroyed by the Philippine-American forces at that time in order to prevent the invading Japanese from using them. So can you imagine the loss? So this was the biggest challenge I was actually facing because I knew that there was a lot of material that's gone forever. 
and could never be recovered or even reconstructed. So, and that is why I applied for a Fulbright scholarship so I could go to the US. I knew that the United States meticulously kept all official documents from the colony and also engaged in intense intelligence gathering during the war. So that was something that I took advantage of. And luckily I was granted the scholarship. And let me tell you about the disappointments. I thought I would find a ton of material in the Library of Congress and even in NARA, our national archives in the US, but there was not really a lot about radio during the American colonial period, even in the voluminous files that they had in those archives, there wasn't that much. There was some, after I combed through voluminous data to get a few nuggets, I found them, but I had to overcome the disappointments to be able to accomplish what I set out to do. So in the end, I did find a few gems. Let me tell you, first one that really, you know, I nearly screamed when I saw it, disturbed the entire archives. I found two sepia photographs of the first radio station in Manila that had call letters. You see, the first experimental broadcast stations did not have call letters. So when I found that, I was very happy because it proved to me that indeed they set up these really nice looking, classic looking studios to be able to operate the first broadcast station with call letters in Manila in the mid-1920s. Another gem was a list of investors in radio broadcasting. This was totally unexpected. And this list reversed my preliminary assumption that the Americans were the only ones who invested in the new business of broadcasting. That list, which contained uh, the amount of money that each investor put into radio, indicates that there were more Filipinos who bet on this budding industry than Americans even if the Americans were the ones who brought the technology to Manila and were the ones who started the business. So that was actually an aha moment for me. So you want to hear another aha moment, Malay? So the beginnings of what today we know as the CIA or the Central Intelligence Agency in the United States involved radio. There were a few government agencies organized during the war for the purpose of intelligence gathering. One of them was the OSS, or the Office of Strategic Services, which was closely connected to the FBIS, or Foreign Broadcast Intelligence Service, which started as the Foreign Broadcast Monitoring Service. It monitored the shortwave stations from the countries involved in the war, as part of its intelligence gathering activities, including radio stations in the Philippines. And one offshoot of these activities, apart from what later evolved as the CIA, was the Voice of America. This is the Voice of America, Washington, D.C., signing on. Which uses to this day radio broadcasting to spread the official American ideas around the world. Another surprise that I did not expect, of course, had something to do with shortwave radio, which became an instrument of propaganda by both the Axis and the Allied powers. Because the radio stations in Manila were broadcasting both on longwave and shortwave, they were actually broadcasting internationally. I didn't know this when I started this project. One proof of this was the fan mail 
that the radio celebrities received at that time. I personally saw extant pieces of fan mail of Priscilla coming from all over the world and also from ships at high seas. You know, they, uh, the ships at high seas were equipped with radio and they were also listening to radio broadcasts from all over the world, including stations in the Philippines. You know, Priscilla even received marriage proposals from some of her fans outside the Philippines, and it was there in the fan mail. Listening to you, I see the similarities in your archival research experiences and the project that I'm working on now. In the Sonic Entanglements project in which this podcast is part of, I am looking for extant audio recordings from and about colonial Southeast Asia in the different sound archives in Europe. Considering that some cultures in Southeast Asia are non-literate and therefore might lack written archives, for me, the idea of disclosing historical sound recordings, therefore, is pertinent. I find the necessity to consult sound documents to augment and possibly rectify the literacy-based colonial narratives. But this makes it difficult if these materials are stored in repositories in former European colonial metropolises, which makes them inaccessible to the cultures from whom these recordings come from. Isn't that ironic? I see the parallelism in the work that we are doing. I currently have a research grant from the Dutch Research Council, and I'm using this grant to access these archives in order to decolonize the narratives that frame these recordings. I realize that there are colonial archives in Europe that remains inaccessible. Even those that may have opened their collection for researchers, there remains obstacles, such as required credentials, language barriers, or even travel visa. You received a Fulbright scholarship to be able to conduct a six-month research in the U.S., and your archival investigation expanded the current discourse of colonialism from the perspective of audio broadcasting, which is an important scholarship. For me, decolonial work lies in correcting the universalized Western and Eurocentric discourse, However, this course is created by those who have access to the primary sources. And seeing how our ability to access the archival materials is still an exception rather than the norm, we still need to consider how this can be improved. Absolutely. Absolutely. While researching archival materials from the British broadcasting company Empire Service in former British colonies such as Singapore, Myanmar, and Malaysia, I ended up in a bureaucratic loop. BBC referred me to the British Library, who are supposed to now hold materials from before the 1950s. In the process, I found myself between the two institutions, pointing at each other. BBC and British Library have a very elaborate database of their entire collection, but neither seems to have a clear policy about accessing documents pertaining to their former colonies. And this is why I think there are still gaps in the media histories in former British colonies. Well, that's unfortunate. So as a concrete step forward, I am proposing a project to the European Joint Initiative in Cultural Heritage, which would support the disclosing of colonial archives to Southeast Asian stakeholders. Through this project, I would like to facilitate the conversation that would allow communities from former European colonies, the agency, to decide how these colonial archives might be organized, as well as to put them in the leading role in developing the discourse around these historical materials. But I am digressing. What you're saying is fascinating. And I didn't realize that you had such difficulty accessing materials in the BBC archives. I would imagine that they would be organized as well. 
And well, you know, the National Archives in the United States is not 100% organized, and they themselves admitted that. No, but I'll go back to that discussion later. But what I was saying is, you're absolutely right about archives. And I think one of the things we talk about in the classroom also in my classes is that archives are not innocent collections of materials. It is very discursive because who decides what to keep to begin with? And those decisions are ideological or compelled by certain convictions or value systems. And who decides what to make available? I think those are questions that should be raised and to challenge the way we do archives and the way we make the archival materials available or unavailable to scholars. I do hope you get what you're looking for, Mele, and I do hope that the Southeast Asian scholars are able to access these materials. It's really important. From narratives in discourses and archives, I would like to also ask you about the materiality of the archives. In your work, you deal with different types of archival materials, written, image, and oral. How different are written sources from sound documents in your research? How do you engage the materiality of sound and sound recordings? You know, one of the things that I was a little disappointed about was the fact that I did not have as much sound files. I was not able to access as much as I was expecting in the beginning. Actually, I found a lot more locally than in the Library of Congress or even in the National Archives. The local source that I found, a private collector of records and recordings, it was actually very good. I found quite a bit in that collection, but it was not organized the way an archives would be. And so I had to really dive into the material and see what I could find. And in many cases, infer uh, the meaning of the sound files. At the National Archives in the United States, I found actually a lot of sound material, sound files, particularly from the war period. What is disappointing is that the vast collection of thousands of what are called memovox discs, which was a uh, format used for instantaneous recording in the 1940s, they were stored in the National Archives in the US, but they are not accessible because the machines that run them are no longer usable. That's what I was told. I had hoped to listen actually to these records because they carried the transcription of shortwave radio broadcasts before the war and during the war. But unfortunately, during the time I was there, they could not be accessed because they no longer had the machines nor the technicians who could fix the machines if they were there and run the machines. So that was one disappointment, working with sound material. Locally, the archives are biased to keep printed material, documents, what they call documents. Traditional historians cared about documents. The closer they are to the original, the better. Handwritten over printed, things like that. And very few actually kept sound files. As a matter of fact, the local archives that I consulted did not have any sound files. And the only sound files that I found that I was able to use in my study belonged to this private collector of records and recordings. That was also difficult because since it was not indexed or organized the way we expect archives should be organized, it was very difficult to be sure about the provenance 
of each sound file, each musical recording, for example. No? So I also had to rely on the memory of this old man who collected everything. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but he lived a long time and he was around even during the time that these records were put on the air and became popular. And so I had to rely on his testimony and his memory. And we know that sometimes memory are not always very reliable. But then this is where I had to infer a lot of things and do a lot of verification also by going online and looking for other possible sources that could give me an idea of whether the sound files I was working with in this particular collection were really relevant to the period or not. So those were the issues I encountered working on sound archives. Professor Elizabeth Enriquez, thank you very much for sharing with us your expertise in this field. And thank you for providing these insights in our understandings of how radio and listening as an act, as a process, influenced our knowledge of colonial history. The pleasure is really mine, Milen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sonic Entanglements podcast. I am your host and producer, Mile Yamomo. Thijs van der Geest is our sound engineer and sound editor. And Jean Bersena is our publicity manager. Our theme music is created by Marcus Hocherforst. Additional sound engineering by Luis Olin and James Zipangan. This podcast is funded by the Dutch Research Organization. This episode is supported by Deutschlandfunk Kultur. Special thanks to Marcus Gamel, Director of Deutschlandfunk Radio Art Department. If you would like to listen to other episodes of this program, subscribe to Sonic Entanglements at Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Pocket Casts. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more, you can head over to sonic-entanglements.com.